Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Galatians chapter 5. At verse portion there of verse 22. And then we're going to uh, turn over to the Gospel of John and uh, read another passage that will help orient our thinking uh, about these matters. First Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Now let's turn to John chapter 15. From the lips of our Savior in this final discourse as we're diving into what's known as the upper room discourse this final speech that Jesus makes sermon we could say that he gives uh, to his disciples before his uh, death and then departure John 15 verse 12 and we'll begin actually in verse 9 in verse 8 <laughs> By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Let's pray. Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to come and to lead us into all truth, the things that we know not, what he teaches us, the things that we have not, what he graciously give us, and that which we are not. By your word, working with the Spirit, would you make us. For Jesus' sake, we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Well, we had a first in our family a few weeks ago. Not an exciting first. A broken bone. Uh, my five-year-old son, Jacob, rolled off the top bunk. And a double break in his wrist. Um, pretty horrifying night for the parents. Going to the ER and... Uh, you know, I was, it was almost like a scene from a movie. I was carrying him there, and uh, he was, you know, just shirtless and just had his pajama bottoms on, and his arm is all akimbo, and he's screaming, and I'm, I kind of felt like it was a scene from, yeah, ER or something, and I'm like, stat, we need a doctor, stat, you know, and, uh, but they get us into um, the room, and there was one thing that seemed to temporarily calm him down, and that was the x-ray. Oh, what, you're taking pictures of the inside of my body? And I'm going to get to see them? Yeah, we'll get to show them to you. Oh, boy, okay. And it was like he wasn't even in pain at all. I want to see these pictures, right? And so he sat dutifully even through the pain while they took dozens of photos, and all because he was clinging to that promise, you're going to show them to me afterwards. 
Um, X-rays are very interesting, aren't they? Uh, instructive and helpful for us. They show the true nature of things. They show us what's really going on. Uh, when we had a follow-up with the orthopedic the next week, they took some more X-rays, and she took the X-rays of, of Jacob, and she put them side by side, um, a, a picture of a normal, healthy, all-in-a-bone and, and radius bone, and, and was showing them to our son. And Can you see what's, what's off here? Yeah, you didn't need to be a doctor to see what was off there, but you're comparing what's inside of you and what's supposed to be inside of you. And I, I wonder... This weekend, as we are considering the character of Christ in order to shape our character, what would it be like if we could, imagine with me, take an x-ray of, of our, our hearts, our souls, our, our inner being, our innermost self, and put it side by side, an x-ray of, of Christ's self, his, his heart, his character. What, what would we find? How would they compare to one another? Well, in this x-ray of, of Christ, uh, his, his heart, his soul, what makes him who he is, if you were to take an x-ray, I think you would find a cross. The cross is the heart of Christ. Everything he did for his people took him to the cross. Uh, everything uh, that, that he is for his people is found at the cross. And there in the cross today, we will learn of real love, joy, and peace now, our x-ray, in comparison, would simply show, I think, a bunch of splinters. But when we receive the Holy Spirit, he starts to put those together and form the cross within us. Uh, form the cross within us. Our lives are to be cruciform. That means Christ or cross-shaped. And uh, as we look at these virtues, we'll, we'll never understand them. This has been my contention this, this weekend. We'll never understand them if we don't understand Christ. But now I'm going to add something to that. We'll never understand Christ if we don't understand his cross. We won't know Christ if we don't know his cross. When you remove the cross and then look at these virtues, uh, they'll, they'll become empty. Uh, some could become self-serving vices. If you don't understand what love is, and you can understand it apart from the cross, you'll manipulate, you'll, you'll pervert the meaning of love so that it doesn't become a virtue, it actually becomes a vice. Uh, or if you remove the cross, these virtues become impossible ideals, goals for us that we can never reach. Well, the three we're considering this morning, love, joy, and peace, they're ones you hear a lot of in the world. Everybody's all about these. I was thinking, you know, especially at Christmas time, those are words you hear, love, joy, peace, the things that are promoted often. And yet, without the cross, the world actually can't attain them. The cross, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is that upside-down wisdom, that inside-out power of God. It doesn't make sense to the world, and yet it makes sense to those who have been redeemed by God, who have been given His Spirit. We want to be taught by God. We want His wisdom to override our folly, His power to be made perfect in our weakness. So to that end, we are looking to the cross. And as we look to Jesus, and as we look to His cross... We're going to see two things this morning. First, we're going to see a love that the world just doesn't get. Uh, a love that they just don't get. By that, I mean they don't understand. And second, we're going to see a joy and a peace that the world could never give. That they could never give. So those are the two things I want to focus in on. Uh, a love that the world doesn't get and a joy and peace that they can't give. First, a love that the world does not get or does not understand. Love is love. You heard that 
phrase before. Love is love. At least that's what the world has been telling us. It's a slogan you, you'll see splattered against uh, rainbow flags or in yard signs, at least in uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan. That's a popular thing you see. Uh, it's shared often on social media. It's touted regularly by cultural elites. Love is love. It sounds nice. It seems empowering. What does it mean exactly? It's not really saying much, is it? Love is love. That doesn't really help me understand what, it, what love means. But we know what the phrase is communicating. It's saying that everything you need to know about true love is already within you. It's whatever you want it to be. Love is love. Love is love. It's entirely subjective. According to one LGBTQ activist speaking to a New York reporter, love and love, love is love means, quote, that my friends and family and anyone who might love someone is able to love them freely and willingly. No one can tell them that that's not okay. That's what love is love means. You can't tell anybody that that's not okay. Love actually then becomes a self-centered endeavor. It's about uh, people doing what they want to do, uh, what will make them feel better, what will give them happiness. But even a cursory glance at the biblical teaching on love will show us that that's not compatible. The world's definition is not compatible with the Bible's definition. The love we're called to express and share and cultivate in the fruit of the Spirit is a love that is not self-centered, but other-centered. It is not about my wants, it's about others' needs. Now, philosophers have said there is a sort of love that is actually about what I want and my need. Uh, um, it's in Greek, that kind of love would be called eros. We get our English word erotic from it. It's talking about romantic love, uh, you know, this sense of I just need this other person. And there's nothing wrong with that, especially as that love would then be expressed in a biblical marriage between one man and one woman. But that's not the love we're called to cultivate and grow and express in the fruit of the Spirit because it doesn't take a supernatural work of God to make me attracted to someone. Uh, what we're talking about in Galatians 5 is not this eros love, but agape love, a word I'm sure you've heard before, agape. And it refers to sacrificial love, not a me-centered love, an other-centered love. So we see the difference. In, in eros... I sense a need for someone, and agape, I don't have a need at all. It's the person I love who has a need, and, and I want to meet that need for them. Not because I'm going to get anything out of it, but just because I want to benefit them. And it's this agape love that is best seen in the life and ministry of Christ, because every thought, his every action is marked by other-centeredness. He's never once motivated by personal interest or selfish gain. But rather, he's moved and he's motivated by the needs of others. He wants to help, heal, and care for others. His heart, overflowing with love for the loveless, draws him like a magnet to the needs of the lost and the wayward. His entire life is, is a great exposition of this verse. The fruit of the Spirit is love. What does that mean? Look to Jesus. Well, we can even get more specific than that. We can get more narrow than that if we want a definition of love because Jesus gives it to us and we read it in John 15. He says, greater love, agape love, same word as in the fruit of the Spirit, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I'm talking about laying down our lives. And that means there's something about the cross, something about the cross that shows love in a way that overshadows everything else that Christ did in his life. 
If you want to know what real love is, look, look to the cross. Look, and he's telling his disciples, essentially, look what I'm about to do. An old hymn acknowledges that we read the love of God best in him who came, bearing for us the cross of shame. That's how we read or understand love best. And so that's what Jesus is teaching in John 15. It's as though he says, if you want to know love, if you want to learn about love, you need to know what it means to lay down your life. If you want to know what it means to lay down your life, look to what I'm about to do. And now this is said in in the context, as we read, of this new commandment. He says, this new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Uh, Just as I have loved you, you should love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's chapter 13 in verses 34 and 35. This is, this is what it's all about. This is what Jesus is calling us to, to love one another. And the disciples hear that they're commanded to love. A natural question would be, okay, well, what does that love look like? All right, what's that love like? And that's the question that Jesus has anticipated in, in chapter 15, 13, when he says, well, greater love has no one than this, that you lay down your life for your friends. And you know the disciples are thinking, Drat, I wish that wasn't the definition. <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I was hoping that you were going to say, greater love is no one than this, that someone pick up his friend from the airport, you know, um, or, or help, help, help your friends move. You know, like something that just kind of slightly inconveniences us, but not, doesn't call us to everything, doesn't call us to lay down our lives. We could get behind that kind of love, right? You know, an inconvenient love, but this is not that. This is not that. John won't let us get away from it. He brings it up again in his epistle, 1 John 3.16. By this we know love. Okay, that's what we're after. What is love? That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. There it is again. You can't escape it. We're called to this kind of love. It's a countercultural love. The, the world doesn't get this, this other centered love. They don't understand it, but we must understand it since we're called to display it. So what does cruciform love look like? What does a sanctified love look like? What does this love do? What is it? I want to draw out three things for us. This kind of love, it's sacrificial, it's merciful, and it's redemptive. Okay, those three things. Sacrificial, merciful, redemptive. First, it's sacrificial. As I've already noted, Christ's love and the love that the Spirit is working in our hearts, it's not about us, it's not me-centered, it's other-centered. It, it's not about pursuing my passions and desires, it puts the needs of others first. At the cross, we learn that real love is sacrificial. It's marked by sacrifice. It does not close up shop and head home when the going gets tough. It doesn't leave at the first sight of inconvenience. Rather, it thrives on inconvenience. The love of the cross, is it not magnified in the pains that Christ bore there, and the fact that it was calling him to, to give up everything. It's the bleeding and the thirst and the humiliation and the wounds. The, the wounds those all join together as this massive, I love you, declaration from Jesus to the world. We see it because of all that he went through, all that he gave up, all that he sacrificed. That's the, the main thrust of Jesus' line there in the upper room when he says, you, you need to lay down your life. Laying down is the language of sacrifice. You're giving it up. Of course, the life that we're talking about there, that's more than just a series of heartbeats, our passions, our pursuits, the things we're interested in. 
that all makes up our life. And so, insofar as we sacrifice our, our preferences, our time, our money, our, our wants, and insofar as we sacrifice these things for the benefit of others, we should be assured that we are living in obedience to this instruction. But, that being said, let's not lose uh, the punch of Jesus' claim or, or the power of the cross, that the greatest display of love is laying down one's life literally. Literally. It was by the Holy Spirit that Christ loved in that sacrificial way. Hebrews 9.14 says he offered up himself by the Spirit. And so a fruit of that same Spirit in our lives will be sacrificed, even the ultimate sacrifice. Even the ultimate sacrifice. John doesn't want us to water down the extent of God's command to love. That's why he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The import of this verse is one that we would do well to sit with, to meditate on, and reflect on what is the Bible actually calling us to. I think Jesus wants us to get to a place where we see that living is actually not the most important thing about our lives. Did you hear that? Did you get that? Can I say it one more time? Jesus wants us to see that living is not the most important part of life. Not for the Christian. As Christians, the most, impart, uh, most important part of our lives is actually other people's living and their well-being. So whatever I can do to enhance that, to protect that, to, to help, is love. And that's what I'm called to do, even if it means dying to make it happen. That, that is what we're called to, so let's not sugarcoat it. The love of the cross is sacrificial. It's merciful, too. The love that the Spirit of God creates and cultivates in our hearts reflects the divine display of love at the cross in this way as well that it gives to people who don't deserve it. It's merciful. Christ's love is for people who only deserve punishment and enmity. Why should ours be any different? We certainly are called to love others within the church, even when they sin against us, but we are also called in the Scriptures to love our enemies. You know, Jesus has said that the, the greatest display of love, the greatest love, was that somebody would lay down his life for his friends, but then... At the cross, Jesus ups his own ante, as it were, because he lays down his life, not for his friends, for his enemies. For his enemies. And Paul revels in that truth in Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. That's how we see the love of God. It's merciful. And thirdly, it's redemptive. Because it's that death that secures our life, isn't it? Christ's love has a, has a goal in mind, the salvation of sinners. It's redemptive. And our love should have a redemptive trajectory as well. We cannot save anyone, don't misunderstand, we cannot save anyone by our loving them, no matter how well we love them, but our love should point to the one who can save. Consequently, then, our love for others, while it comes uh, free and despite a person's sinfulness, it never ignores or excuses or champions sin. Now, this is really 
important in our day and age to think about this, right? If we're supposed to love in a redemptive way, in a, in a way that has a purpose of, of getting uh, salvation into the hearts of people, then what does that mean about people's sin? And how can we love them in that sin? The world is offering you a, a, a false dilemma. They're saying that unless you fully accept and affirm someone's sinful behavior, you are not loving them. Right? Uh, years ago, not, not many years ago, it used to be understood you could, the saying was, you can love the, the um, sinner but not love the sin. That does not exist anymore. The, that's not how the world operates. If you don't affirm everything about a sinner, you're actually threatening their identity. And how can that be a loving thing to do? You're, you're throwing them into an existential crisis. And so you have to, to be loving, the world says, you have to be affirming. But if our love is meant to be redemptive, then we can't do that, right? We need to reject that outright because that's not how Christ loved us. When we look to the cross, how could we ever condone sin or wink at it or embrace it? Because this is what it did to our Savior. That's what sin did to our Savior. The pains he bore, he bore because of sin. And I just want to say thank God that Jesus found a way to love me without affirming my sinful ways my sinful habits. Thank God that Jesus found a way to love me without accepting me as I am and wanting to keep me as I am. But no, he wants to change me. He wants to change you. The love of the cross is redemptive. He embraces all. He welcomes all. And he says, now, that sin you're dealing with or that sin that you're living in, let's deal with it. Let's, let's change. Let's grow. Thank God that he did not affirm my wayward choices and my lifestyle, but instead, instead of affirming... Jesus atones. Now, there's probably some questions that arise in your minds. How, you know, well, how does that play out? Maybe you have some family members that that's a kind of a debate for coworkers. Uh, how this plays out is complex. It's vast. And we can't get into the practicalities of it all in the time we have. But we can at least set forth this important principle. If we, here's the principle. If we are honest about... Uh, Sin, if we are not honest, excuse me, if we are not honest about sin with others, then we offer no hope of heaven and we only confirm them in their hellbound path, and there is nothing that is loving about that. Nothing. It's precisely because the love of the cross was redemptive, that it saved sinners, that it transformed sinners, that we're told in the scriptures that, that the cross is something that Jesus could approach with joy. With joy. Even knowing the, the horrors that the future held for him. Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy of being raised in glory and the joy of, of sharing that glory with his elect. It's a joy that's based entirely on God's good plan and not the shifting circumstances of our day. So just as the world doesn't get the love of Christ or the love of the Spirit or the love that the Christian is cultivating in their hearts, it also cannot give the joy or even the peace that the Spirit is producing because the joy and the peace that the Spirit is producing is based on the unchangeability of God, on His character, on His will, not on the shifting circumstances of our day. So you're never going to find it here, this joy and this peace that we're ever after. You're not going to find it in this place, in this life, in this world. Right? And people are misguided. 
They think the only way to attain happiness is through asserting their preferences or by climbing social ladders or getting ahead in their career by having a happy and healthy family. Well, what happens then the instant that one of those is taken away from you? What happens when you fall off that social ladder or you get fired from your dream job or you do not have a happy family or you don't have a healthy one? What happens? What happens is you lose your joy and you lose your peace because you rooted them in circumstances and not in the unchanging character of God. That's what Jesus did. That's how he could have a joy even before the cross. That's how he could march, it says, with a determination in Luke 9, he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem, knowing what it held, because his joy, his peace, was rooted in God's perfect will. And so in God's plan, beloved, the joy and peace that he plants in our hearts is something that can never be shaken, and it can never be taken. I wonder if you realize that this morning. The joy that God gives and the peace that God gives is rooted in himself, and he never changes. Our joy, our boast, our glory is the cross. The fact that God so loved wretched sinners like us that he took our curse and he secured a spot in glory for us. The sudden death of a spouse doesn't change that. Uh, the call with a, uh, with a diagnosis from the doctor doesn't change that. The massive spiritual failing in your life doesn't change that. The call to suffer in this life doesn't change that. I'm also called to be joyful and at peace. Think about joy for a moment when the source of our joy is in the perfect, perfect and permanent plan of God, our joy will be permanent as well. That's the only thing that can make sense of the numerous New Testament exhortations to, to be joyful always. Don't those puzzle us? What are you talking about? How about James, right? Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, the world which finds its source of joy in circumstances can't make any sense of that. And as Christians, we struggle with it too. You know, how can James possibly expect us to be joyful even when we're going through trials and difficulties. Well, an understanding of what God is doing through those trials and through those difficulties is the only answer. So what do we know uh, about what God's doing? What do we know about his will? Well, we know it's right and we know it's perfect because God is right and God is perfect. We know, we know that his will is for our good, right? He's working all things for our good. We know that God doesn't make mistakes. There are no errors within God or within his plan, we also know that God uses trials to make us more like Christ. And isn't that what we're after as Christians? Isn't that what we're talking about? How do we grow in godliness? We want to learn from the Son of God. And he didn't say, well, the cross is going to get in the way of my mission. The cross is going to, is going to compromise my character. No, it was all fulfilled at the cross. The Christian should feel the same. The cross doesn't get in the way. The cross isn't a hindrance to us. No, God uses our trials to make us more Christ-like, more dependent on him. Trials make us better people, really. James says, count it all joy when you face trials because they'll make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's only true for the Christian. If you're an unbeliever and you're here today, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're with us. But I want you to know this very soberly, to hear this, that for the unbeliever, the fiery trial is nothing other than a precursor to the hellish fires of eternity. 
And quite understandably then, trials in life would suck all the joy out of your soul. But when you have Jesus, when you have Jesus, it transforms everything because now the trials in this life aren't a precursor for hellish fire. It's a, it's a purifying fire. It burns off our dross. It refines our gold. And it actually now prepares us for heaven. Our trials don't consume our joy. And they don't consume us. We're shaped through our trials. And our joy is shaped in our trials. Our joy, just like our love, is cruciform. It's cross-shaped. The cross doesn't throw off my joy in life. Rather, I become more joyful in life as I go through, by faith, the various difficulties of this life and I see more and more of God's goodness to me and the fact that he'll never leave me or never let me go. Our joy is even formed by the cross of suffering. And so is our peace. We can be at peace through our suffering. Why is that, we ask? Well, because of what real peace is. Real peace, again, is not something that the world can give us. True peace is being at peace with God, our maker, whom we have committed treason against. Sproul would call it cosmic treason. Real peace is knowing that we're on good terms with him. And how does that happen? We've been reconciled by the blood of Christ's cross. Again, the cross is the center of our peace. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He did it all. He gives us the peace that we need to get through this life. Peace is not something that the, the fruit of the Spirit, when we're talking about peace there, it's not something you can attain from a prescription. It comes from living life in, in light of the reality that we've been reconciled to God through the death of His Son. That is, friends, the cure for your deepest anxiety, to know you're at peace with God through Jesus Christ. And at the cross, Christ reconciled more than just sinners to God. He reconciled all things. You know that Colossians 1.20 tells us that? It says, Jesus reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's reconciled all things. Why did he have to reconcile all things? Because sin does not discriminate, right? At the fall, sin began to infiltrate everything. It riddles the entire globe, de decay, disease, and death, you find it everywhere. No rock, river, flower is able to render back to God the complete perfection for which it was created. This whole world, in that sense, lacks a peace, lacks a shalom, if we could use that word. It lacks a prosperity with which and for which God made it. That's, that was the whole point. But through his death on the cross, Christ has guaranteed the eradication of this terrible blight we call sin... And he has ensured that all things will be made new again. All things will be restored. So what are you worried about? You can be at peace knowing that. His cross has done it all. Christ, friends, we could say it like this. The Christian should say, Christ secures my joy and peace through his cross. Christ secures my joy and my peace through his cross... And the Holy Spirit forms joy and peace in me through my cross, through my suffering, through my trials. Christ secures it through his, the Spirit forms it in ours. So these virtues, love, joy, and peace, they are empty. 
They're meaningless if you don't see them through the lens of the cross and what Christ did there for us. And there, as we look to Calvary, we find something that the world doesn't understand. They don't get the love like that. That's not love. No, love is affirming me and letting me be who I want to be. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Love is telling you that if you stay that way, you're going to hell forever. And to keep you from it, I'm going to die for you. That's love. We see that at the cross. We find something the world doesn't understand. And at the cross, we find a joy and a peace that the world can't impart, can't, can't give to us. So why are you trying to find your joy in, in this place, in this life, through accomplishments? You know, you're, you're, you're anxious and you think, well, maybe just... If, if I work a little harder, make a little bit more money, uh, lose a little bit more weight, or maybe, you know, we find our peace at midnight, everybody else is asleep, but we've wandered over to the kitchen and we're opening up the, the fridge because we just need a sense of just everything's okay and that late night snack does it. I'm speaking from personal experience here, right? We, we try to find things that just calm us, give us a little hope, and, and these things that we, we look to are pathetic, they're empty. They don't do anything but delude us. But what doesn't make sense to the world, and let's be honest, sometimes it doesn't make sense to us, is the cross of Jesus. Yes, it's folly to the world. It's weakness to the world. But it's God's wisdom and it's God's power to make us who we're meant to be. So, the world can't impart these things, but Christ can and he will if we're willing to take up his cross with him. Will that be hard to bear a cross in life? Yes, it will be hard. Absolutely. We have a cross patiently to bear in this life, but we remember the words of Samuel Rutherford to encourage us. I love this in a letter to one of his congregants. He says, The weightiest end of the cross of Christ that is laid upon you lieth upon your strong Savior. The weightiest end of the cross of Christ that lieth upon you is actually upon your strong Savior. So see his cross, take up yours, and discover true love, joy, and peace. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we do thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you for what was accomplished there. And we would boast only in it. Far be it from us to boast in anything but the cross of Christ by which we are crucified to the world and it's crucified to us. And now there we find Christ in all of his glory. What a, what a, a wonder that something like a, 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 the death machine that the cross was could be the glory of Christ. And yet we know that this is how he was highly exalted, lifted up for the purpose of drawing us to himself. In his shame, uh, what, what we only saw as shame, you were pleased to see glory, the glory of saving sinners. Lord, I pray that that saving truth would come home to us today, that it would take root within our hearts, that it would change us, that it would transform us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and that you would be the after preacher, that you would take these meager words and that you would... Apply them to our lives in ways uh, that will be for our eternal good. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.